So I think like utilizing your resources in your community can be really helpful. And I think remembering too, like there's no such thing as a stupid question when it comes to nutrition. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's a complex field and there's so much information out there. So just not being afraid to ask questions, I think is really important too. Hello, welcome to The Seasoned RD, a podcast connecting newer professionals in the field of eating disorders to those of us who have been around for a while. I'm your host, Beth Harrell, a certified eating disorders registered dietitian and supervisor. And I'm Abby Brown, a registered dietitian who is newer to the field. I think of myself as a well-seasoned cast iron skillet with wisdom and experience, yet always ready for something new. And I think of myself as an Instapot with innovation and a fresh perspective. This podcast brings both to the table to share ingredients, recipes, and techniques of past and present so we can all be our best for the future. The kettle is heating up. The skillet is on simmer. So join us around the table for true professional nourishment. Abby, ready to stir the pot? Let's do it. Welcome to the Seasoned RD Podcast, where today we get to have a conversation with Megan Foley, registered dietitian at the highest level of care for eating disorders and malnutrition. I couldn't wait for this episode as as I'm listening to prepare it to drop soon. I'm reminded of how dietitians can stick together, how the clinical work that we all do, we can lean on each other and learn from each other, which is exactly what this podcast is about. And the third voice you'll hear in this episode is Janice Baker, who we had on a previous episode. It was really fun to have all the levels of kind of, quote, seasoning in the room. Janice has about 10 more years as an RD than I do and has different credentialing, like the Certified Diabetes Education Specialist and then also nutrition support. Abby asks some really great questions about our clients and how their perceptions of what's happening in their body for weight loss. I want to shrink my stomach and how the goal isn't necessarily to get their clients to like us. In Megan's seasonings, I'll put them in the show notes, she talks about Dr. Mailer's book, the fourth edition of Medical Care and Complications of Eating Disorders, as well as Supervision Again, which is, again, the whole idea behind this podcast, especially for dietitians, because we're not used to that. I have my teachers, my supervisors, that I regularly reach out to, and I hope this podcast helps you know who you can reach out to when you're feeling kind of alone. Private practice seems to be all the rage right now, and I can tell you there's a lot of value in what Megan was saying about working in a clinical setting and leaning on other dietitians who have areas of specialty different from ours. So I do offer monthly supervision freebies. The one I'm working on now is what our guest wishes that she would have known years ago when she started in the field. Information is in the show notes. Well, welcome to the Seasoned RD podcast, Megan Foley. Thank you guys so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here and chat with you guys a little bit. We love chatting with anyone from Acute, so we're happy to get to add you to the list of awesome guests. We'll ease you into it, though, with some icebreakers. My first one for you is mountains or beach? Oh, that's easy for me. I am a hardcore mountain girl. I live in Colorado. I've been here for about almost 10 years now. So when we are able to get away on vacation or just for the weekend or even after work, we are definitely heading to the mountains to hike and check out the scenery and relax. So mountains for me. That sounds so nice. And I have another question. This is really my favorite. I love to hear the answers to. 
Uh, what do you prefer, breakfast or dinner? Or there may be another answer to that as well. You know, I eat breakfast because I know it's good for me. <laughs> I know I need to, but I am definitely a dinner person. My favorite food is French fries and it is not socially acceptable to eat those at breakfast. So I am dinner all the way. <laughs> what is your favorite dinner? Do you have a favorite dinner? Ooh, like if, if I were to do like a last meal, it would be shrimp cocktail mm-hmm. with French fries and fresh green beans. Oh my gosh. <laughs> the last meal. I love it. <laughs> okay. Audiobook or paper book? Oh, paper book. That's yeah. I get distracted when I listen to audiobooks. I do it since I have a commute to work, but I will take a paper book even over like a Kindle. I think there's a difference. So I, I belong to the library. So I love paper books. Awesome. Yeah. Well, listen, we want to hear about how you got into the field of nutrition. You're a registered dietitian and certified eating disorder specialist. So how did you get into nutrition as a field and eating disorders? So I went to school at Penn State and I was halfway through my sophomore year and I had to like really make a decision. And I had started as an elementary education major because that's what my sister did. And I was like, that's what I should do. And then I remember sitting in my advisor's office, just kind of like leafing through books. And I found a section on registered dietitians that work specifically with athletes. And I was like, this is what I want to do. This is fascinating. I was playing a sport at school. I thought it would be so interesting. So I made a pretty hard left from education and obviously went into a science field and had to start from scratch and take all of my, you know, science prerequisites to do that. But I loved it. And then during my internship, I got the opportunity to shadow a dietitian for the Washington Commanders. And I was like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to work in sports and dietetics. And then I did the thing and I followed a man across the country without a job and I was a fresh baby dietitian and I got a job working PRN for maternity leave at Denver Health and it was my first clinical job and I thought it was so great and I was really excited because when I got the job they said the woman who works on the eating disorder unit was going to be on maternity leave and I was like oh my god they're going to let me work on them the eating disorder unit. And they're like, no, 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 you don't get to work there. You have to just do general medicine and someone else is going to cover for her maternity leave. So it was great. I learned so much. I did PRN for about six months and then a full-time job opened up on acute. And I, the day that I got a part-time job offer on acute. Actually, I also got a full-time job offer to work in a community nutrition and I needed a full-time job. So I just called them back and I said, I, I want to work here, but I can't accept a part-time job. And 20 minutes later, they called me back and they're like, just kidding. We'll make it full-time instead. So <laughs> I just was like, okay, I know nothing about eating disorders. I have no experience, but let's give it a whirl. I think we were going from like maybe a four bed unit to a 10 bed unit at that time, which is crazy to think that now we're a 30 bed unit. And I just kind of was thrown into the wolves and was given this great opportunity to learn from a, a coworker and in her moving on, I was kind of given this opportunity that I continue to build the program and hire new dietitians and kind of help make it what it is today. So that's how I got here, but I really yeah. can't see myself in any other field of nutrition at this point. I, I mean, our backgrounds are similar in that I was thrown into the wolves and I feel like the, the, 
31 years ago, they just took a chance on me in this inpatient program. And so that's how we learn, right? Mm -hmm. So I forgot to ask you the question because our listeners are, some of them are in school, some of them, and this is therapists, dietitians, medical providers are our listening audience. And so can I take you back to the traumatizing RD exam day? What do you remember (laughs) from that day? It was a weird day for me, actually, because I had been studying, of course, like everybody else and had to go to a testing center. And I remember sitting in my car and reading like my last note cards and being like, just go in and get this over with. Like you're studying too much. You're being a crazy person. Just go do it. And so I go in and I only showed up 15 minutes early because I didn't want to deal with the like drama of like waiting and feeling anxious. And my test wouldn't load for a full, I think it was 90 minutes. I had to sit there. They just kept waiting for it to load. And then this older gentleman was talking to me while I was waiting and uh, was kept getting up during the test and like dropping his, you know, cause you can't have anything with you at the test. And I took my test finally. And, you know, the screen just goes blank, (laughs) or at least it did when I was taking the test. I don't know what it does now, but you have no idea how many questions you're going to get or what is going on. And I remember going through and being like, okay, I feel like I'm doing okay. Like, I think I'm getting through this. And then all of a sudden the screen just shut off. And I was like, oh my God, I either passed or I failed miserably because I've only answered like a certain amount of questions. And then, you know, they make you click through and it's like so anxiety provoking. And then a score just pops up and you can't read anything because you're trying to read everything. (laughs) And then it said, you passed. And I was like, oh, my goodness, because I just heard a horror story about a woman who took seven times to pass her exam. Oh, my gosh. And so some people out. aren't test takers. Obviously, I know, I you know, know, your science that you had to then shift from mm-hmm. education to science. Obviously, you did pretty darn well with that if it, it shut off early for you. Yeah. But so I go up to, to get the results and I say to the woman, I'm a dietitian now. And she goes, congratulations. Also, that man left you a phone number if you want to call him. And, oh. <laughs> and I was like, no, I just want to call my mom. That's all I want to do right now. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. So. Okay. Was, well, yeah. awesome. Thank you for sharing that. And what, how did you learn what you learned, what you've learned so far at Acute? And I say so far, because before we hit record, you were saying, I feel like I don't know everything that I need to. And it's like, you're, you are the one we're all looking up to because you get to see the sickest of the sick, the ICU for eating disorders and malnutrition. We need to add that because dietitians listening, that's what we can diagnose is MNT, you know, through MNT. Yeah, I have been super lucky to work alongside a group of dietitians, both in the eating disorder unit, as well as the general like hospital. So we have just a wealth of knowledge on our team of dietitians. So in some sense, we have like the ability to talk to dietitians who work in the ICU, who are CNSC certified. So when we have our more like complex patients with nutrition support, we're able to really pick their brains and talk to them about, you know, different things that could be going on with them. If we have to transfer a patient to the ICU for whatever reason, you know, we're really able to talk to them and work together to come up with a plan that maybe isn't actually as much about weight rest and is more about kind of like reducing their carbohydrate intake so that they can work more on breathing or whatever it may be. So we've been very lucky to have like a wide breadth of dietitians there. Additionally, of course, we work alongside the wonderful Dr. Mailer, who just knows 
everything there is to know. So he provides us with a monthly supervision, actually. So we're able to kind of sit down with him once a month and review like whatever complex case might be going on. So we get to learn a lot about the medical side of things too, which has been really helpful and how it intersects with the dietary side. And I would say like probably the primary thing that I find so valuable is the dietitians on acute are really looked at as the experts in nutrition. And so we are really elevated to do our own research, participate in research and just make up nutrition care plans for these patients. And so it kind of gives us the ability to dig into our own knowledge, each other's knowledge, books, whatever it might be. So it's just really encouraged a lot of learning. And then I get to meet people like you guys at conferences and <laughs> yes. learn from you guys too. And so I've been given a really great opportunity to actually go to like several conferences and listen to webinars and doing continued education through IADEP and things like that. So that's really, I think how we've all, I've picked up most of my knowledge at least. I am just envious of all the support and and learning that happens around you. I can just hear my clients right now. If they, this is a professional podcast, but some will listen because they really want to try to understand what treatment providers are like and what we can do and what may be affecting their recovery. When you say reducing carb intake to improve breathing, I can just see it now. See, I shouldn't eat carbs. Megan says that it's going to help me breathe. Yes. So this is specifically for patients who are intubated. <laughs> so yes, please do not listen to that in any other faction than that. This is mostly going to be for the patients that are in the ICU who are intubated, who just need kind of less energy to metabolize and where our primary goal is keeping them alive and stable. Then at that point, the eating disorder becomes the secondary problem and not the primary problem. So when we're treating them outside of that, we love carbohydrates and we want them to eat them all the time. <laughs> yes. I mean, you talked yeah. about French fries and other things. Yeah. And I was, I had the, uh, the pleasure to have some time with Deb Spector, who has followed you around the occasionally, I think, at Acute. And she talks about your approach with patients and being pretty direct with them about what they need and how they need to shift it up. An example she gave was somebody saying, I don't know what I want tomorrow for my menu. So why don't we just do the same as today? And you're like, nope, we're going to switch it up. I want to hear your style. Yeah. So I think I think it's pretty individualized and I would say every dietitian is like a little unique on the unit, but we definitely have kind of a similar approach. And I think first and foremost, we look at where they're coming in at. So we can have patients coming in at 40% of their ideal body weight. So treating their brain the same as we would maybe a patient who's nourishing themselves for several weeks just isn't a fair approach to these patients they're not going to remember what we say half of the time, let alone understand how to challenge themselves. So initially, you know, I try to be really flexible in the sense of we just want to make sure they're getting a balanced diet with appropriate amount of calories. We recognize that their calorie increases have to be pretty aggressive. And so we really want to make sure they're able to just get the food in. If they don't want to use a feeding tube to help with that, we want to make sure we can condense their meals and give them foods that they can manage. And so this generally means they're starting off with pretty safe foods. As they progress through treatment, you know, we really try to help them understand the mindset of this is the beginning of your journey, not anywhere close to the end. So we have to get you to a point where you're ready to interact with other people and be around other patients. And a lot of that comes down to your meal plan. Also, what I think we believe is that this isn't going to get 
easier until you do it. And so the avoidance piece of, I just want to eat the same safe foods every day, all day is easier for me as a dietitian, you know, it's easy to be, okay, great, go ahead and do it. But I think recognizing that it's going to make their recovery much harder in the long run, if they just wait to enforce these challenges is something we're really aware of. So after a couple of weeks, we certainly will start to say, okay, like, let's start with at least one new food item tomorrow. And then the next day, maybe let's focus on a new breakfast. And I think something we collectively try to do is kind of come up with almost like a hierarchy with them as well as like a goal with enough time to process it. So maybe on Monday we'll say, okay, so when I see you tomorrow, I expect you to pick this new thing. And then on Tuesday, when I see you on Thursday, I expect you to be able to do this and ease them into it. And sometimes it's tough because it does come down to, if you can't pick it, I'm picking it for you and it will show up on your tray. And then you have to choose in the moment what you're going to do with that. So it could be challenging to navigate those conversations, but I think we find a lot of value in working on the food flexibility earlier on than waiting until later. Totally. And for those of us in the outpatient setting, we really appreciate that because the rigidity, like you said, you can't work on brain sometimes if they're at 40% ideal. And we need we need somebody who's got them 24-7 to help with that. So you mentioned if they don't want a feeding tube, they get a choice? Sometimes. <laughs> So we really love to use feeding tubes and kind of propose them to the patient as a tool that they have available to them. So kind of we're saying you have this whole tube box and I'm part of your toolbox and the therapist is part of your toolbox. And a feeding tube can be part of your toolbox if you want it too. And so, you know, for some patients, it's tough to navigate because some of them want a feeding tube. They really want to feed into the role of being sick and looking sick and kind of meeting this criteria of being on a cue and being the sickest person, kind of navigating the behavioral side, I think is important. But then when you look at the medical side, you know, I work on a medical stabilization unit. So our goal is to make sure they're safe. So if a patient comes in and they have a blood sugar of 40, they're refusing to correct it. They're not completing their meals. If they refuse a tube, you know, we do have a policy and protocol in place where we can do that against their will. It's pretty rare that it is the case often uh, once they kind of hear it's kind of happening either way, they're, they'll take it voluntarily. But then for additionally for patients that are just low body weighted, having a hard time with gastroparesis, having a hard time getting through their meal plan, we will let them do nocturnal tube feeds if that's something that's a little bit easier just to help condense their meal plan and work up towards some of these challenges versus kind of throwing it all in their face right away. This is, I think, especially helpful because sometimes in the outpatient world, it feels like what we do is so different than what inpatient dietitians do. But I'm starting to see so many connections just as you're speaking. One thing you mentioned that I feel like I had come across a lot with the teen population is that comparison. So you said, you know, someone wanting to be the sickest patient on the floor. So we will get a lot of that, like, well, this person's so much smaller than me, so I'm not that bad. Like, I don't, I don't know why I need to eat an extra snack. I'm not as small as this person. How do you deal with that? That is where I think the multidisciplinary approach can be so beneficial to our patients. So we'll hear that with our patients, you know, like, I'm just wasting a bed. I don't need to be here. And kind of one, again, navigating, like, are you looking for validation? Are you truly like believing this? You know, how can we support you through this thought process? But when we have patients like that are really feeling like, I don't need to be doing this. I'm not sick enough. Look, my labs are totally normal today. It's often beneficial to have either a team meeting 
or a joint session with their psychologist. So we can kind of sit down and process like, why is this coming up so much for you? And how can we have you feel this way, use your coping skills and continue to complete your meal plan to kind of help you meet your goal of getting out of the hospital. So I think that's where we find some benefit kind of validating and we have to do it anyway is kind of a big Totally. I mean, nobody can get admitted to acute unless they need it. Like it's not just a, like a sorority that you can kind of sign up for. So, you know, when the sickest of the sick, I say in your area are still wondering if they should be there. That is such a beautiful way to bring in the therapist because there's something else going on that we can address. Okay. We're going to take a quick break to recognize the sponsor of this episode, I'm always surprised and saddened when people don't know about this resource. It is that kind of a resource that's truly life-changing. Acute Center for Eating Disorders and Severe Malnutrition is your partner in assessment, referral, and treatment for patients at risk for refeeding syndrome, as well as those experiencing other dangerous medical complications of malnutrition, of purging, and excessive exercise. ACUTE is the only dedicated inpatient medical stabilization program in the country with resources, environment, and experience to treat the most medically severe cases of eating disorders. This life-saving care is covered by medical insurance, which then preserves the valuable behavioral health benefits for patients as they continue the recovery process. When they are medically stable, patients discharge to the appropriate next level of care back to you. Typically, they're establishing disorder care team or referring IP res program. So all care at acute is overseen by Dr. Phil Mailer, the world's leading expert in medical treatment of eating disorders. Expertise and experience matter when seeking medical care for severe eating disorders. You deserve the unmatched understanding that Dr. Mailer and the acute team bring to each and every case. And I wanted to tell you, I put in the show notes, there is a there's a link to a webinar, Journey Through the Levels of Care, which is so important. This is the hardest thing for us as clinicians is to help our client be ready to take that level of care that we know they need. Um, March 23rd at 9 a.m. Mountain Time is when you will want to register before that. That's when this webinar is available to you. So information is in the show notes. I would love to hear a little bit. I know we could talk about this a long time, but in those who are admitted to acute, and I know of some just from experience in what I'm doing now, who have diabetes, typically type one, but it could be type two, insulin emission, multiple history of DKAs in the hospital, very malnourished. Then they come to acute, you start your care, you start your treatment. They're dealing with really erratic blood sugars, insulin edema, (laughs) you know, that is really rough on them. I would love to hear your approach. Do you do continuous glucose monitoring systems? You know, do you have an endocrinologist as part of that? I just can't wait to hear about how that's uh, approached. And this is something that I still like, maybe that that's, I have so much more to learn about diabetes and eating disorders. And it's interesting. We actually have a patient on the unit right now who's who's meeting the severe malnutrition secondary to her diabetes and a needle phobia. So she actually doesn't have an eating disorder, but she would restrict her calories because she noticed that if she didn't eat, she wouldn't get the highs and then she wouldn't have to take her insulin as much. So it's really just kind of fascinating the psyche behind all of it. But 
We typically do not use continuous glucose monitors. The patients just get so, I think, worked up, like looking at their blood sugar numbers and kind of, if they don't want it to be above a certain thing, they'll be like demanding the nurse comes in and it just becomes like a whole kind of dramatic experience. And so we often will, you know, check their blood sugar for them. And then we have... We have an endocrine team on just in the main hospital. So that's like a great thing about being in the hospital is we can kind of get anyone over. So endocrine will come over. We have them meeting with the patient to kind of check in how things are going. They'll come in usually and check with the dietitians to see if we need to make any modifications. But our kind of general rule of thumb is to take their diabetes out of it from a meal planning perspective and just let them pick the things that they want, encourage food flexibility, you know, and allowing them to see that you can have a piece of cake, even though you have diabetes. And then the nursing staff will dose based off of how many grams of carbohydrates they have at each meal and snack. Yeah, they're tough though, because they, they like to have a lot of control over that part of their treatment. And then I think the other thing we take into consideration too, is where they're going next and what they're going to be doing with it. So if they're going to have more flexibility, with checking their own blood sugar or giving themselves their own insulin, then we will consider working that into their plan while they're at acute as well. Okay. It is complicated because they may have been hospitalized before with DKA and given a lot of information that triggers more disordered eating mm-hmm. that we have to unravel. So I'm seeing the after part mm-hmm. and the weight from the fluid retention is so distressful to them. And that's a whole nother medical issue in itself, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And that's actually not something we see a ton of, like is like fluid retention from that. But I would say kind of it would mirror someone with Pseudobarter syndrome, Mm -hmm. kind of from my understanding. And so that is very distressing, right? Like kind of the thought of like, I've already gained 10 pounds and I don't need to be here anymore. And I'm so uncomfortable. So, you know, our, our, our doctors are outstanding at managing edema and fluid accumulation of any sort. They have like this crazy cocktail of medications they can give the patient. But I think that's, again, another thing where the multidisciplinary approach can be so Mm -hmm. helpful of like the doctor explaining the medical side, the dietitian kind of, we have to feed you through this, the therapist, like talking about the body image Mm -hmm. side of things. So just really coming together to kind of present a united front that although you feel this way, this is the reality of the situation. And we need to find a way to push through and get you through the other side. Oh my gosh, we have to feed you through this. And this is goes along with what Janice said about the triggers of like, you can have a piece of cake if you're diabetic. And so they've been taught these things because they have diabetes that you can't have certain foods. And this is actually part of feeding you through this is, is, is figuring out how to best nourish you. You also mentioned earlier the secondary malnutrition and and acute does that. It's a smaller percentage of folks who are there. But I on uh when you mentioned the 40% ideal body weight, I'm wondering how you figure that out for someone with atypical anorexia. Are you starting to see more people with that? Yes, we're definitely starting to see more people with atypical anorexia and you know, we are finding that those patients do tend to be more in a normal or higher weighted body when they come in. So it's more weight disruption that we're seeing for those people that could be coming from, we're seeing like a a good bit of those patients coming in from 
some sort of gastric bypass surgery, either that they got inappropriately or appropriately. And then once the weight loss started, they just spiraled out of control. And so we'll see that kind of significant amount of weight loss in a short period of time. So that's been kind of interesting to navigate because it's new to everyone and we're learning as we go. I think something that's been really valuable for me is understanding that like their ideal body weight is going to be so different. Like that's just such an kind of antiquated thing at this point. And so when we initially started seeing these patients, we didn't know what we were doing. (laughs) And so we would just kind of be like, okay, we're going to give you 1800 calories and try to maintain your weight. And now we're actually taking what their normal body weight was and coming up with a percentage of what they're at for that. So these patients that are atypical, although they're coming in at 120% of like their ideal body weight, we're really actually seeing them at 70% of like their normal body weight. So we've been able to reframe their goals and do more of an actual weight restoration to get them back up to like what their normal body weight was to really help them see that like your body is different than this person's body. And, you know, you still need treatment. And I think that's something that's been so important is providers don't think these patients need ongoing residential treatment. They think, oh, their their insurance companies are saying, well, their their weight on paper looks fine, but then they're not getting any of the tools or tips that you need from residential to be successful long term. So it just ends up being this cycle of weight loss. Totally. And and you couldn't see it, you listeners, but she was doing the quotes around normal and ideal. So we do have to move away from that because we have to look at what's happening in the body. And what because I think. I don't have the the studies on my computer, but I've attended enough sessions to know that medical complications can be the same or sometimes worse because it takes longer for it to get noticed for people with AAN. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think something that's really important and like for people treating people with significant weight loss that are still a higher weighted or normal weighted body is that they're still at risk for like you said, that the same medical complications, they can have a bradycardia because they're losing heart muscle. They can have, they can have SMA syndrome because they've lost such a large amount of weight in such a short period of time. And this can lead to ongoing nausea or vomiting, a lot of pain with eating. So it's important to, yes, definitely treat these symptoms seriously and get them monitored. They're still at risk for refeeding syndrome when they start to refeed. So kind of all the same things that are very, very underweighted patients could be going through. I never even considered patients coming in from bariatric surgery. That has to be an interesting perspective. I have worked with bariatric patients in the past and there seem, I can imagine that this is a challenge for y'all. So I'm curious how, what y'all do for this, but I'll hear a lot of, well, I don't want to stretch my stomach out. Mm -hmm. You know, I had this surgery for a reason, but what do you do in that instance? I, I think this is like such another understudied population. And so there's so much work to do, but we, again, are very lucky to work with or have access to a team of bariatric dietitians. And so we've been able to really sit down and come up with a protocol of this safety and efficacy of following certain bariatric protocols and other refeeding protocols. So 
for instance, one thing they're not supposed to ever have is caffeine. They're not supposed to use straws. Um, they're supposed to wait 30 minutes after meals before they drink anything because it can take up room in their stomach and stretch their stomach. So we definitely like will not allow them to have caffeine. We won't allow them to use straws. We do have them wait to take in their liquids. But then other things like they shouldn't be eating things with concentrated sweets because it can lead to dumping syndrome. We really treat that symptomatically. So we say, try the piece of cake and see how you do. I don't think we've ever had a patient on the unit have dumping syndrome from their bariatric surgery. So it's been interesting to learn kind of as we go that you can actually give these patients a lot of the same foods and still have similar outcomes so it's just more of, again, reteaching the patient, you know, how to eat and how to refeed. And yes, they'll definitely use that as an excuse. And so we just kind of have to show them as we go that everything's safe and okay. Yeah. That's impressive. You haven't had anyone suffer with the dumping syndrome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we just kind of... I don't know the reason why I wish I understood the physiology behind it, but we can give them all of the same things. We'll use our, like I said, our sweets, our desserts, even like large volume of food and they seem to do okay with it. So yeah, we've just, it's, it's, it's more evidence that all foods fit. Like there are no good foods, bad foods, clean foods, junk foods, whatever people want to describe foods that it is your, your, our bodies were designed for a variety of macronutrients and micronutrients, but you can, in your highest level of care, you're not seeing some of the physical complications of like dumping syndrome by allowing, having people try sweets, for example. I think too, like if you kind of go back to a more typical sort of malnutrition patient or eating disorder patient, it's so hard then to differentiate, you know, what's malnutrition and what's real. And so uh, I'm sure you guys see this too, but a lot of our patients will come in with a litany of allergies or intolerances and say, oh, I can't have dairy because I get constipated. I can't have gluten because it hurts my stomach. And, and so I will say that's like a challenge for sure with these patients is helping them to recognize that you know, look, we did a test. We'll do an allergy test and see you actually are allergic to any of these things or intolerant to any of them. You're just malnourished and our bodies are not going to work the same way. You know, we're in hibernation hibernation mode right now. Like we're preserving as much energy as possible. So of course you're not going to produce this enzyme. And of course you're not going to be able to digest your food the right way. They don't love that answer, but I know. And that it goes back to Abby's question of like, I don't want my stomach. I've shrunk my stomach. And now, and that's not actually, I mean, yes, with bariatric surgery, but mm-hmm. back in the dieting before di- bariatric surgery, people do think that their stomach shrinks, but it really is that we downregulate the enzyme production. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a, you make what you need kind mm-hmm. of thing. So if you're not eating very much, you're not creating digestive enzymes. Right. And so slowly bringing that back up, your body can and will respond if there's not an actual allergy present. So that can be helpful to do those tests ahead Mm -hmm. of time. I think that's such an interesting topic, the allergies and how that can play into eating disorders or, you know, my body just doesn't respond well to this. So I'm not going to, I don't want to eat it kind of deal. And, you know, we get that a lot in outpatient and, you know, that's one of the big differences of inpatient is we can't just be like, oh, well, we have an allergist right here. Let's just pull them on in and take a Mm -hmm. test. 
So that is, I, everything you're saying, I'm just feeling is like such a good reminder for us outpatient dietitians of like, we can't totally believe everything that they're saying, you know, they're, they are malnourished and their brains are in a different state and they're not making the digestive enzymes. And this is all really helpful. I am also curious for newer dietitians, do you have any big resources or tips that you would give to newer dietitians working in the eating disorder population? Oh my, well, <laughs> I mean, I hate to be a seller here, but Dr. Baylor's book, the fourth edition just came out and it is so full of useful information about medical complications, like everything that could go on with refeeding nutrition. I think that's really, really valuable resource. So that's one thing, of course, IADEP, like becoming a member of your local IADEP chapter can be really helpful. And if you can attend like continuing education, or I know the symposium just happened, you know, last week, like those are all really useful things. And I think like just recognizing nobody knows everything. Like there's just dietitians just want to help each other. And I never, I've only ever been lucky enough to work in a place with, with other dietitians. And so I was just on a call with a dietitian from a local hospital yesterday about a patient they were treating. And I feel like we're often like exchanging emails, calling people, you know, talking on the phone. So I think like utilizing your resources in your community can be really helpful. And I think remembering too, like there's no such thing as a stupid question when it comes to nutrition. Mm -hmm. It's a complex field and there's so much information out there. So just not being afraid to ask questions, I think is really important too. I want to piggyback on what you said about dietitians just want to help each other and we don't know what we don't know. And even Dr. Mailer, I love how he says, I didn't know how to spell anorexia nervosa when I first started in this field. And, and we know he did, but it's like even getting his fourth edition out, which by the way, Janice on this call has read it from front to back and has tabs and sticky notes all sticking out of all of it. So I think that Janice, you would probably agree with that recommendation for as a resource and you're not selling it. You don't have to worry about that, Megan. We all need this data, but even then it took him so long to get it out because there's new things happening all the time. And he describes it as a burgeoning field. So let's just stay together and help each other. Dietitians do want to help each other. This episode, people may tune into and listen a few times to listen to the language that you've used, Megan, on how you help your patients with eating disorders. So I do have a wrap-up question for you. It's a little bit loaded, so feel free to take your time. But if you were to take yourself back to entering the field of eating disorders, what do you wish you would have known then that you do know now? Like This is completely my own personal experience. I just wish I would have known anything about boundaries because <laughs> when I first started, I'm embarrassed to admit this. I, I, I knew nothing. So we would talk about calories. We would talk about waking goals. We would tell the patients the calories that were in each single food so that they could calorie count as they went. I mean, it was a very small unit. It was brand new, you know, building up mostly just from medical. And that was just such an, now that I know what I know about eating disorders, just recognizing that like holding a boundary with what you find value in is so important. And I think often very well received. 
I think I wish I would have known that kind of, if I can say, if I say to a patient, like, and we have a hard session because I set a boundary and they come across as very upset or very angry, there is always room to fix a rupture, you Mm -hmm. know? And so it's so much better to set a standard of like the care you're going to give and work through that with a patient than be afraid someone's going to be upset with you because you're not giving them a piece of information and recognizing when they're asking for those things, it's their eating disorder asking. It's their eating disorder that's being irrational. It's not the person because that is what I've really learned along the way. And I think it's helped me to like have such better rapport with my patients. They trust me so much more. There's more respect on both sides. And so it's just helped me, I think, overall, like in my practice. I wonder if that's what helped you too with the question of like, I'm not sick enough to be here is pulling in the therapist and helping get that. The boundaries are so important. And Delaney, even when we, her episode drop if you're in real time today, this morning, and she had said something about a typical way to enter a patient's room might be, how are you? And okay, let's work on strength. Let's do, and instead, sometimes it can be just like being in the room and listening to them and not, not pushing the therapy and checking all the boxes. It's, mm-hmm. It can be like more than how are you today? Or what, what, what was the example Janice that she had said? Yeah. Like, uh, you're, you're looking, looking good. Yeah. You're looking good. <laughs> that's so misinterpreted mm-hmm. and right. it can be destructive in a way. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm. And I think something I like really love about being a dietitian in this field is you actually get the best of both worlds. Like you Mm -hmm. really get to use your medical nutrition therapy side and your, you know, clinical side, and you get to really use your interviewing and your coaching skills and your ability to build rapport and get to know these people. And I think, you know, people always say that dietitians have the hardest job in eating disorders. And while it's true, I also think we create so much value for these patients. And it's so meaningful when we can like find that connection and see progress with them. And so I just think like, it's important to highlight how valuable being a dietitian for eating disorder patients is. Yeah. She's been bit by the bug like we have here. (laughs) Yeah. I always think it's so rewarding when your first few sessions with a patient are just like, you can tell they just don't really like you. Mm-hmm. And then by the end, you, everything is vibing. We're on good terms. Like it, it is hard. Sometimes like we're the most hated ones on the treatment mm-hmm. team, but it gets better. Yes. I What your response to the question made me think in regards to boundaries, we don't have to, the goal should not be to get this person to like you. And I think as, at least for me as a new dietitian, that's what I always thought is I want to be their favorite person Mm -hmm. on the team. It's just, it's not going to be that way. And you're probably not being very helpful to them either if that's your main goal. So again, everything you're saying, I'm just like, oh, wow, this is just reminding me of so many good things. So many nuggets. And like one of the big things that dietitians and outpatient will, will learn if they haven't yet is we don't promise weight any weight goals or weight change, you may gain, lose, or stay the same, you know, depending on Megan, I know your area is so different because you will have weight goals and and specific to that, but not promising that, oh, I won't get you to a place that uh, where you're going to gain. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today, Megan Foley from Acute on the Seasoned RD podcast. Thank you guys so much for having me. This is really fantastic. I appreciate it. 
Let's lean on each other and learn from each other so we can grow together as professionals in this field of eating disorders. If you want to connect with me for supervision or membership with monthly content, please find me at bethharrell.com professionals.